0: Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 109. It's December 1834, the 2nd of December to be more precise. The British had just emancipated slaves at the Cape, although real freedom was still some months off as the colonial office decreed All should first work as apprentices to improve skills before they were set free. On the frontier, a sequence of unfortunate events was to take place, which provided the spark that ignited a war. Albany's civil commissioner in Grahamstown, Captain Campbell, was a man of the colonies, a settler with their interests at heart, although ostensibly in the pay of the empire. Andri Stockenström, who was one of the more astute frontier experts, had left the Cape at that very moment, and is deft. Touch was sorely needed when it came to the Amatosa. Tensions had been growing between the British officials of the Cape Bureaucracy and the settlers about how to treat the Ahmadosa and the Koi. The British thought they had been quite clever over the past few months. They had restricted the flow of gunpowder to the frontier just in case the Boers became even more rambunctious about the coming emancipation. But all the British really managed to do by doing that was to reduce the colonists' firepower on the eve, of a frontier wall. The Cape authorities were trying to limit the supply of muskets and gunpowder to burghers on the frontier because they heard that many of these were supplying weapons to the Amatosa, which is true, but for every action there's an equal reaction, as we all know. Back in England, incidents and accidents and events and fires had shocked the nation there, and the small colony of the Cape was hardly on the radar of the ruling folks and the citizens. In October 1834, the British Houses of Parliament, or the Palace of Westminster, as it was known, had been destroyed by fire. Both the Houses of Commons and the House of Lords of the British Parliament had gone up in flames. The British were now focused on an investigation which traced the disaster to an order from the Exchequer of the Board of Works to destroy what was known as the Tally Sticks that had been stored as part of record-keeping. These were sticks of hazelwood, marked with a system of notches and then split lengthwise, thereby providing two copies of accounting as proof. The notches were angled in different ways and inscribed with a record of debt or credit and virtually tamper-proof. They were used for over 600 years in England, up until 1826. For example, tally sticks played a role in the formation of the Bank of England in 1697, when it issued £1,000,000 worth of stock in exchange for £800,000 worth of tallies and £200,000 in banknotes. The bank then promised to pay interest on the tallies. This rather cumbersome system led to thousands of these tally sticks gathering dust in the Houses of Parliament basement, drying out beneath the House of Lords. A decision was taken in 1834 to destroy the tally sticks inside two furnaces inside the Houses of Parliament. The blaze was so intense it set the chimney alight and the fire spread to the entire building destroying the Houses of Parliament. While residents of England tut tutted about the burning, the residents of the frontier in South Africa were going to busy themselves with the business of staying alive as the Sixth Frontier War burst into flame. Tamakosa had finally decided that real action was needed to confront the colonials. All the resentful chiefs, like Makoma required, was a reason to motivate the nation. Up to now, the responses to external threats had been fractured. Nguika and Columbia had competed with each other as they sought to deflect the expanding Dutch and then the British. Some of the sections, such as the Konukwebe, had always been on the outside of real power. The closer royal lines had seen them as not proper, so to speak. They had been very interested in working with the new arrivals on the African plains, whether Dutch or British. Then they worked with the missionaries. But as the 1820 settlers expanded their interests, as the ceded territories and the debate grew, the Kat River settlement burgeoned. The Makoza were being pushed east, and there wasn't much more space available there because the Kaleka and the Tembu and the Pondo had demarcated their territories. Even further east lived the dreaded Amazu, who had made it very clear there was no movement in that direction whatsoever. To the north were the Basutu, a nation that had developed a name in the art of war and were not to be trifled with either. These men and women of the Drakensberg Mountains. And of course, these mountains themselves were also virtually impassable. The Amakosa were hemmed in, and there's only one option left to anyone who's squeezed into a space. When your back's to the wall, you tend to fight. It was the start of December 1834 when a Boer farmer reported to the British authorities at Fort Wilshire that he had been robbed of horses by the Mbalu people, the chief was in Nguyenu. Fort Wilshire is northeast of Grahamstown, just south of Alice, just across the great Fish River. On the second of December, Ensign Sparks was ordered to lead a commando of Boers and English soldiers to seize cattle from Nguyenu's followers as compensation. They duly seized forty cattle and were herding these back to the fort when a large party of Mbalu warriors began to shadow them, trailing them like deer. This was alarming. Chief Nguenu heard about the patrol and his warriors seeking revenge, so he sent his son, Stockwe, to intervene before there was bloodshed. Stockwe rode off, but shortly before he reached the warriors, some rushed the patrol, which fired a volley and stopped the attack. Stockwe then managed to convince the warriors to leave, after also convincing Ensign Sparks to cease fire and the patrol continued towards Fort Wilshire in peace. Or at least, that's what they thought. Stockway's actions, in retrospect, were remarkable, really. He'd ridden towards a group of Boers and soldiers who were firing at the Amat Khosa. He'd managed to flag them down, then defuse a nasty situation. But things don't always end well. Just as the patrol arrived at the fort, a group of Khosa attacked again, and Ensign Sparks was hit by an assegai and seriously wounded. The troops made it inside the fort, where the bleeding and semi conscious sparks was treated. After years of acquiescence, this was the first time that an Amakosa warrior party had resisted the seizure of cattle. For experienced frontiersmen, they were deeply concerned. There was a change of mood and temper, something was up. Colonel Henry Somerset happened to be at that fort at that very moment, but instead of reading the signs, he felt insulted, outraged that one of the chiefs would break his word. The fact that Somerset had broken his word many times seemed to have escaped the British soldiers' attention. Nevertheless, Somerset demanded swift retribution. There were now between 800 and a 1,000 soldiers thinly stretched across the frontier, a pitifully small force compared to the tens of thousands of amateurs warriors, many armed with muskets. The amount of ammunition available to British forces on the frontier was also at its lowest ebb for years, because, as I said, they'd been trying to stem the flow of gunpowder to the Boers, who were selling some of the precious powder to the Amakosa. Despite the numbers not being in his favour, Somerset pulled together a force of a couple of hundred soldiers and rode to Knutli's Kraal, where he demanded the chief hand over 150 cattle as punishment for Ensign Sparks' asseghing. Somerset also ordered the chief to move his kraal east of the Kaiskama River and began sweeping the thickets all the way from Fort Wilshire to the coast. Next in his sights was Kungwa, who complained that his corn was still unharvested, but to no avail he was evicted. A day later, Somerset ordered another patrol from Fort Beaufort on the lower Kat River to expel Charlie from his new kraal. He had moved into the contested fringe country, the ceded territory between the Kat River and the Amatolas. This is the land that Macoma had pointed out when travelling with Colonels Wade and Somerset only a few months before, declaring that one day his people would be back on this land. Lieutenant William Sutton of the 75th Regiment led his men into the ceded Territory and set fire to the kraals there, seizing Charlie's personal cattle. Stealing a chief's cattle was a declaration of war, according to Amatosa custom, and during this heated moment a shot was fired that precipitated the war. You've heard about the shot that triggered World War I, the shooting of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, but probably never the shooting of Koko. It goes like this. Damakosa warriors had surrounded the patrol after they took the chief's cattle and a running skirmish was fought as Lieutenant Sutton retreated back to Fort Beaufort. One of the soldiers then fired a musket at Tiali's younger brother Koko, grazing his skull. Koko was knocked down, but stood right back up and shouted, ''Why do you take the oxen? There is no war between us.'' The warriors watching this were beside themselves with fury. It's one thing to take the chief's cattle, but then to shoot the brother of the chief, well, that was a challenge even more insufferable than the seizure of property. Because Koko had been shot, this changed the entire narrative, which up until then had been a series of frustrations. It was now a moment of decision. This was totally unfair. Although Koko's wound was barely a graze, he jumped right back up after it had skimmed his head and shouted, Fight! Fight! to his men. News of his wounding was carried to all parts of the Amakosa nation by special messengers. All frontier chiefs were informed, including Hinsa of the Kraleka. Charlie was, of course, incensed and strode off to the missionaries near his kraal to demand they write a letter to Somerset to ask why he'd shot Koko. Glasgow Missionary Society's William Chalmers dutifully penned a quick missive after inspecting Koko. When the youngster arrived, he appeared to be in good health. The wound was a scratch, but that wasn't the point. What Chalmers didn't really understand was that the wound was symbolic. The Scot said to Koko, somewhat sanctimoniously, "'You see, the necessity of prayer. You might have been killed and have died an unconverted man!' Which, had this been a movie, most viewers would have rolled their eyes, of course. But this is history. You can't make up this stuff. The Matkosa held a contrary view expressed by Chief Chatsu when he said, Every Kosa who saw Koko's wound went back to his hut, took his assegai and shield and set out to fight, and said it is better we die than be treated like this. Life is no use to us if they shoot our chiefs. Matkoma was informed of the wounding and knew that the chance of revenge against the British and the settlers was nigh. He had held back from launching a full-scale invasion of the settler farms because he knew that his warriors were no match for the British military as long as the Amacosa remained fractured. But when he heard about Koko, he knew his moment had arrived. The blood of a son of Nneka has been shed and can only be avenged by blood, he railed. Some of the chiefs continued to hedge their bets, despite agreeing in principle to fighting the British, and that was during their August gathering. It's one thing to talk, it's quite another to act. These chiefs and councillors found themselves under intense pressure from popular excitement. At first, there was no real agreement about what exactly they should do. Some were still reluctant to take the final step towards this war. Historians say that there was no conspiracy per se to launch a premeditated attack on the colonists but other historians, including oral historians, say the opposite. This was exactly what Makomo was up to when he consulted the of chiefs living between the colony and the Kai River, speaking to the Amatlambwe, the Medange, and the Ambalu, who were all enthusiastic in their support for a war. The old foe, the Amatkunukwebe, and the Patu, and the Amtinda, and the Diani Chachu, took the advice of the missionaries, who became aware of the rising anger, and suggested patience. Matkoma's own mother in Notonto heard about the planned hostilities and walked the 30 kilometers from her house to her son's to remonstrate and warn him against fighting the British. She had seen too many of her people dying in previous wars against this empire, but Matkoma was beyond reason. Some of the Amatkoza chiefs still regarded the British as allies against their arch enemies within their own clans, but those days were rapidly coming to an end. If there was going to be a war, it was important for the paramount chief of all cause, Hinsa, to be consulted. After hearing much what Koma wanted him to do, Hinsa cautioned against the war, sending his messengers to the frontier chiefs with the following words. Hinsa says you must not fight, for I do not fight. Despite his regal position, he was ignored. Jachu uttered these words in turn. Hinsa is king, but if any insult is offered to Hinsa's people, and they are going to make war upon anyone, and Hinsa tries to restrain them. They would not listen to him. Missionary James Reed was the closest to the in 1834, and was going to be surprised by the coming invasion. He said afterwards it resembled a spontaneous reaction by common men and women, led by angry chiefs like mat who had lost everything to the settlers. What happened in December 1834? was the warriors were going to rush into the colony without the support of their paramount chief, Hinsa, at first. Perhaps one of the most enlightening comments about what was going on came from a military veteran called Captain C.L. Stretch, who had fought against Inglaide, the war doctor, Makana, in 1819. Stretch had defended Grahamstown during that incredible battle and then settled on the frontier afterwards as a farmer. He noted that the Amacrosa had planted immense gardens and cornfields only a few months before the war, that they would never have risen at this point with such important fields to cultivate. This was a spontaneous combustion following a long period of bitterness. For Makoma and Chali, the leaders of the warriors, the main target militarily was Colonel Henry Somerset and his troops. So it must have come as good news when Somerset made the mistake of ordering Chali to come talk to him on the 18th of December, a few days before the war really took off. The soldier ordered the Amakosa leader to meet him at Chumi Station. Instead, they surrounded the station with around 1,000 warriors, Charlie in the midst, and shouted at the messengers. Luckily for Somerset, he'd yet to travel there, or it would have been curtains. Then, on the 21st of December, 1834, more than 10,000, some say as many as 15,000 Amakosa warriors emerged from the eastern lands along a 145-kilometre front that stretched from the Winterbach in the north to Algoa Bay in the south and attacked the settlers. The invasion of the colony had begun. A day later, the 22nd of December, German missionary Friedrich Gottlieb Kaiser, who'd founded a mission station with Makoma's blessing, asked for an audience with the chief. By now McCorma was besieging Fort Wilshire, the British officers and fearful settlers who'd survived the first day hiding within. Macromer's councillors tried to stop Kaiser, but eventually he managed to push his way through to the high ground overlooking the fort. "'What are you doing here?' asked Kaiser, crying. "'I am a bushbuck, for we chiefs are shot like them, and are no more esteemed as chiefs.' "'But the governor is coming to set all these things right,' said Kaiser." referring to Sir Benjamin Durban, who had still not visited the frontier, despite promising to do so for months. Where is he? Matkoma demanded. I do not know, answered the missionary, but he is coming soon. You must go home with your people and await his arrival. I have no home. The bush here is my home, said Macroma. But think of the bloodshed and destruction if you persist in doing as you do now. Yes, great bloodshed will follow. But the fire is burning, and I cannot quench it, admitted the chief. Kaiser begged Makuma to leave. His followers began laughing at the missionary, and the shout went up, le The land is dead. In the towns of the New Frontier, the land was alive, but it was now fearful. Gramstown in 1834 had 700 houses, many public buildings including the handsome Anglican church that still dominates the main street downtown, a population of more than 3,000. There was no rough justice like the American equivalent at that time, the Wild West. It was all orderly. The people of the town had been known to march in an ugly mood to the homes of the missionaries, but these were non-violent episodes, angry and ugly maybe, but not the lynching mania that seemed to dominate American towns. Bathurst, down the hill at the coast, was the centerpiece of the 1820 settlers in many ways, a link to the ships that brought them to Africa, and Port Elizabeth, Further down the coast was a large port, responsible for nearly 20% of all the Cape's exports by 1834. It was towards these towns that the first ever amakosa initiated war was to lap like an angry sea, and a war that was to change from Macoma's war to Hintze's war, despite the regent warning against it in the first place. It was also the first war after five that the Amakosa stopped launching suicide mass frontal attacks against British troops who never lost a direct engagement of this sort. The Amazulu would of course continue these sorts of attacks for another two generations, long after the Amakosa had figured out that it was far cleverer to fight in small detachments than to fling oneself against fixed positions like lagers and forts facing cannons, rockets and muskets. When the warriors advanced, it was in these platoon or company-sized groups, evading the patrols and bypassing the fortifications and key points. It had cost the British a pretty penny building these defensive positions, and like the Germans attacking France in the First World War, they merely pushed past these fortified strongpoints and took the battles into the rear from the first days. Then, ironically, one of the first forts that was abandoned was the British pride and joy Fort Wilshire, which the Amatoza proceeded to loot and burn as the detachment of English soldiers and some farmers there soon beat a hasty retreat to Grahamstown and Fort Beaufort. In Grahamstown there was a constant whip cracking and bellowing and wheel rumble of the wagons as traders and farmers came and went. Perpetual bugle calls and parade ground drills, galloping cavalry underlining the lurking tensions. The green jackets of the Koikoi soldiers and the red tunics of the British shone through the dust thrown up by hooves and boots. On the eve of the Amacosa attacks, settler journalist Robert Godlinton wrote in the Grahamstown Journal about the prosperity of the farms that encircled the town and spread across the frontier. The neat, whitewashed cottage, the substantial farmer house, the secure enclosure, the stacks of corn, and the beautifully green hills profusely sprinkled over with cattle or sheep all indicated a substantial comfort. As the Amakosa unleashed on the Albany, Somerset and Juttenhag districts in 1834 and the beginning of 1835, they aimed directly at the settlers. By the 12th of January, they had killed 32 men. The warriors spared women and children, as was the Amakosa custom in war. Eighty Koi Koi servants were killed, 456 farmhouses torched, 300 others were pillaged, Nearly 6,000 horses, over 110,000 cattle and at least 150,000 sheep were driven off. The missionaries were also left alone on the orders of the Amakosa chiefs. The Koi Koi vacillated at first. Many were killed on the farms which ultimately drove them to fight for the Cape authorities, although some guarded the invading Amakosa raiding parties. The Amakosa had made the mistake of killing the inhabitants of the Kat River settlement, which they then devastated. Some harboured the idea of convincing the Khoikhoi koi to work with them in throwing the colonists off the land, but then began to kill the very same Khoikhoi, koi, and the Amatosa ruined that plan. Further west, the Boers very quickly formed up their traditional wagon lagers. One of these lagers on the farm Moy Macy's Fontaine, Pretty Girl Fountain, survived eight successive night attacks by the koi while the English settlers fled from their farms to Fort Beaufort, Gramstown, Bathurst and Salem, where they took refuge in fortified churches. Warriors were heading towards these settled zones, but also heading towards this frontier was someone so remarkably otherworldly, he is seemingly of another planet, and yet ostensibly a man of his time. He was Lieutenant Colonel Henry George Wakeland Smith, later to be known as Sir Harry Smith, who had come dashing into the frontier. An astonishing man, as astonishing as shocker perhaps, but of another place, and Harry Smith was another veteran of the Peninsular War against Napoleon. Governor Durban was notoriously slow and cautious. However, with his nomination for the new frontier commander, he threw caution to the wind and let Lieutenant Colonel Smith loose. It was not for nothing that Smith's nickname was Sir Hurry Whackalong Smart, as you'll hear. In the next few weeks, these folks were going to be seminal in reinforcing narratives we still live with today in South Africa and prove that not all wars are equal. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. It helps increase the visibility of the series. Don't forget to head off to the website desmondlatham.blog if you want to contact me All through Twitter at Des Latham. Until next, salagatli.